and welcome to the She Can Engineer podcast. Today, we'll be talking about engineering and entrepreneurship. We always talk about engineering as a space where you can use your creativity and your problem-solving skills to solve the world's problems. And today, we have a really inspirational guest, Francesca O'Hanlon, who is using her engineering mind to solve the world's problems. Welcome, Francesca, and thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's really exciting what you're doing. <laughs> so could you please introduce yourself and your uh, career to date? Yeah, sure thing. So, uh, yeah, I'm Francesca. Um, I trained as a civil and environmental engineer, but pretty early on, I actually found really the only thing that was inspiring me career-wise was um, international development and humanitarian aid. And I guess I really wanted to do something that, had a sense of purpose but also it wasn't entirely philanthropic you know I really wanted uh, to to see the world and um, humanitarian aid and international development just felt like a way that I could explore places and get to meet people that weren't the type of people I'd met uh, sort of growing up in London um, so quite early on I studied at Imperial um, I was part of uh, the El Salvador project which was a really exciting project where um, students went out to El Salvador and helped um, build houses, seismic resistant houses and um, kind of water, water access points. And I ran that in my third year. And then after I finished from university, I discovered Engineers Without Borders, which like so many young engineers of my generation um, had experience with. And it was just a really cool organization. Um, and actually, after briefly working in oil and gas and deciding it was really not for me, um, I quit and I went and did an Engineers Without Borders project in Mexico City. And there my job was to design a what's called a chlorine doser. So a bit of technology that automatically puts chlorine in the water. And I did it really kind of nuts and bolts. I went to the, the local kind of warehouses and shops and, and bought components and put together this prototype. And at the end of, I think it was like three or four months, I, I built this prototype of a chlorine doser. And it was really exciting. And I tested it and it kind of worked. Um, and then I left and I put that project aside. I came to Cambridge to do a master's in engineering for sustainable development. And again, wasn't really thinking about what I'd done in Mexico. And then after my master's, I went to work for MSF, which is a medicine on frontier. And I, I sort of knew at that point, I really, I knew at that point in my career, I think I was 25, that I was ready to get paid to do international development humanitarian aid work, which is quite difficult uh, sort of as an entry point. Um, but I also knew that I really wanted to experience aid work rather than international development which is much more um intense and extreme and, and and yeah it's quite quite a different world um so i did yeah a nine-month project in south sudan with msf um, and i was working as a water and sanitation engineer so my focus had really i kind of narrowed down just from environmental to water and sanitation um and i went and did this project in south sudan as the first one and I remember uh, like halfway through the project, my manager said, oh, can you order a chlorine doser for the hospital? Um, so my job was to provide the hospital with clean water. It was a hospital that we built in a refugee camp. I remember thinking, oh, chlorine doses, okay. Um, and I ordered one and it was $1,500. And I knew that that was the price or, or the average annual household income in South Sudan. I thought, God, that's so expensive, isn't it? Like who can afford to spend all their annual income on a chlorine doser? And it kind of got me thinking back to the project I did in Mexico. And I thought maybe, you know, maybe I can build a better, cheaper one. Anyway, I, I did another mission with MSF in Central African Republic. Um, and after yeah, nearly two years, I kind of 
Um, I had had quite intense experiences, actually, lots of war zones, lots of refugee camps. And I thought, okay, I want to go somewhere safer (laughs) for a little bit to recuperate. And the safest place I'd ever been was Cambridge. It's so leafy. So I came to Cambridge to do a PhD. Um, I did my PhD in in water security and climate change and and how climate actually impacts water access in sub-Saharan Africa. But really on the side of that, from day one, I set up Blue Tap, which is a social enterprise that I run. And the aim of Blue Tap was to develop this chlorine doser that was, you know, more affordable, more accessible, and, and could be used in community water points across Africa. Um, and really, I, I've been running that for the last five years. So um, we've just got to the point where we've uh, finished the development of our technology and uh, are selling it to um, to clients, customers now, which is really, really exciting. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, it's a journey that I've actually been been thinking about chlorination for ten years, just and just by chance because I, I did that project in Mexico City ten years ago. So yeah. That's really amazing. It's a really amazing story how you've it's kind of circled back around without you realizing it. Um, so yeah. you had an experience in Mexico City and you, you mentioned, no, you didn't really think back uh, about it until you had to order another one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so did, um, was that what sort of sparked it? The, the thought of, oh, actually, this is too expensive. We could probably do this cheaper. Was that the I guess, the initial problem you're trying to fix? Yeah, I guess. I think I found it fascinating. Maybe it was really naive at the time, but I found it fascinating that we there was the same problems in Mexico, which is, I'd say, it's a middle-income country. Um, there were the same problems with water access and water treatment as there were in sub-Saharan African countries I was working in, which were very, very much low-income countries. Um, and it's just generally getting clean water. It's just this giant problem that's not been fixed yet, and it it totally baffles me, actually, that has not been fixed because it, it it feels like we're at a point in society where we're about to put people on Mars, but still we can't get like a third of the world's population in clean water. And it's amazing that we haven't managed to achieve it. So it's something that I just um, really, really wanted to contribute to. I wanted to, to try and find some solutions. Um, but also it felt like um, learning how to um, build a technology from scratch, how to set up a business and everything like that, that that was really something I wanted to do as well. So, so I knew I didn't just want to build the technology. A lot of academics, you know, they um, they get a patent, and then they they sort of uh, um, you know license the IP to a, a larger co- company. But what I really wanted to do is learn about the process of, of building and um, the sort of designing a technology and then commercializing it as well. It was that commercial aspect that quite interests me. Yeah, so it's kind of like the whole life cycle of it, rather than just the the, the concept phase. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think probably quite unusually from an engin- for an engineer, I'm, I'm definitely kind of a generalist rather than a specialist. I, I like to learn a lot of different things. I'm not actually super focused on the detail, but it's quite lucky that my colleagues are really good at detail because uh, we fit together nicely. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about Lutap's team, because you've got a small team of engineers with a variety of skills that you can tap into. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing, um, so when I set, I did Mexico City um, project in 2013, and then I set up Blue Tap in 2017. And there was like a big change in that time, uh, which was at the end of 2013, I got to the point where I was like, well, I can keep prototyping, but it's really fiddly, you know, to, to build a little prototype, you have to get each component and order it online or go to a shop. And, and that takes a very long time. and It's quite frustrating. And the big change was that suddenly 3D printing became available. So when I came to the engineering department at Cambridge, they actually, between my master's and PhD, they built a a center called the Dyson Center, where um, 
all the students just have access to like 3D printing and all these other technologies. And it meant that we could prototype because 3D printing was available. We could prototype super rapidly. So we could like design the chlorine doser, um, print it off in a couple of hours, test it, and then make updates and test and print off another one in a couple of hours. So it made prototyping process really, really fast. Um, and actually we kind of all accidentally met. I kind of on the first day put out this call for a project I wanted to work on. And then Tom and Becky and my, um, my colleagues, um, they, they said they were interested and, and um, turns out, you know, we've been a really good team because, yeah, as I said, their skills are the skills that I don't have and, and vice versa. So I think it's worked together really, really well. And I think anyone setting up a, a startup, what you really want from a team is you don't want three people who are carbon sort of uh, cutouts, uh, copies of each other. You want people with different skills. So, uh, so it makes it makes a good balance, definitely. I guess when we talk about diversity, that's one of the, the things that we we want to achieve, isn't it? It's not just the the typical uh, that diversities of groups that you also have that uh, the the covering all the different aspects of um, skills. Yeah, and personality types as well. Yeah, um, and yeah, I think it, it, you know diversity is really important because people with different life experiences have different perspectives, and uh, I think by and large, it's really valuable to get as many perspectives uh, sort of as you can. Staying within the topic of diversity, what sort of challenges have you faced, particularly as a, a woman, as an engineer, we, we know that, you know, we still have the gap within um, gender and engineering, but you did mention uh, when we spoke before about the gap in entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think engineering and entrepreneurship are both sectors that are hugely male dominated. Um so, so, so by and large, I would say my experience as a female engineer has been really positive. And I, I don't know, you know, I, I graduated in 2011, but um, I've just found loads of opportunities for people wanting to support female engineers. So that's been pretty good. I would say there's challenges leading people uh, and especially leading engineers as a woman. That's when it becomes a little bit more tricky. Um, and I think the biggest one is you have to be quite confident, right? Because I mean, so many female engineers and female entrepreneurs I know, there's situations where you are the only woman in a room. And I don't really think much about being a woman or notice it, but you suddenly do feel like you stick out like a sore thumb when you are one of like 85 people and the other 84 are men. Um, so I think you have to feel really confident that um, you, know, you, you should be there and that you should have a voice. I also think there is generally uh, a, a difference in the way women lead and the way men lead. And um, you have to have a lot of confidence in your style of leadership um, to know that kind of, I guess, typically women are, are better at, at yeah, empathy and understanding human emotion and motivations. And I think that that's, those are great qualities for leaders, but, but you have to know that that, that way, uh, you know, feel confident that that's a good way to lead rather than um, to kind of, you know, uh, be like a rugby boy kind of leader and, and be dominating in that way. <laughs> Speaking of confidence, I guess one of the things you have to wrap your brain around is when you're taking that leap to become an entrepreneur, is actually taking that risk and coming out of your comfort zone. Um, I do think as engineers, even though engineering itself is a creative space, we do tend to be quite comfortable solving problems within our own little bubbles. So taking that risk, that leap to go it alone and do something by yourself that must take quite a lot of confidence to do yeah it's a really good point actually and in the the judge business school at Cambridge there was a study done a couple of years ago to work out what was stopping women becoming entrepreneurs 
And one of the big points that they discovered was it was this approach to risk taking. So men, uh, by and large, tend to be, and these are all generalizations, but you know, th there's some accuracy in them. Men tend to want to take more risks than women. And obviously setting up your own business and entrepreneurship is, is super risky. You know, it can go wrong. There's not a lot of job security, that kind of thing. Um, and if you take your kind of typical engineer, uh, they very much like to follow rules. You know, engineering is about kind of codes uh, often. Um, follow rules and to um, have lots of structure. And actually entrepreneurship is, is totally the opposite to that. You've got to work it out on your own. You've got no structure. You're making up the rules often. Um, but I would say there's there's this side of engineering, which is about creativity and particularly civil engineering, which is really my discipline. Um, civil engineering is about people, right? You're building for people. Um, so there's a side of engineering, which is about creativity, about wanting to make uh, quality of life better for people that fits very, very much with entrepreneurship, but also specifically social entrepreneurship, which is really what I do. Um, so I, I do think engineering and entrepreneurship go hand in hand. I think also, you know, if we look at um, my experience is with startups that spin out of the university, obviously, um, engineers are the ones that are coming up with all the great ideas you know engineers are the ones with the products and 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 they've actually built something um and i think uh you know a really really good combination is when you get um, people business-minded people working with engineers to get technology out into the public or to get it commercialized that's when you've got a real winning formula because um you kind of need to, an engineer to make sure that the product is perfect and, and and works and you need the business person to really see uh, what the gap is and how you can uh, really market that product. So for those engineers who perhaps may not want to take the uh, complete leap to entrepreneurship, but still don't have that confidence to take that little extra leap out of their comfort zones, what would you say, what would your advice be, you know, um, when, when it comes to risk taking? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think uh, we are definitely the generation of the side hustle um, mm -hmm. And I love the idea of the side hustle. And uh, the advice I always give to uh, undergrads or students I speak to is when you're doing a degree, uh, it is the perfect time to set up a business because there is very, very little risk of failure. Because if your business fails, you still come out of the time with a degree. And yeah, you might sacrifice some of the time you'd spend studying. But I think, you know, it's manageable. Also, at universities, there's so much access to funding. You know, there's pitching competitions. We did loads of pitching competitions. So, so at university, it's, it's a fantastic time to uh, just experiment with setting up a business. You know, you get all these people now that do MBAs. I have not done an MBA, so I can't really comment. But I know that if you go through the process of trying to set up a business, you, you will learn so much. I mean, I think equal to what you learn on an MBA because you're actually doing it yourself. So, so that's the point about universities, but I would say it's quite similar. If you've got a, if you've got a full-time job, then, um, and you want to do it the kind of most risk-free way possible, is experiment on the side with the business. Um, you know, it, we live uh, in a country where it's super, super easy to set up a business, actually. I think it costs like less than £20 to register a business, and it takes about 25 minutes. Um, and that's really exciting because there's other countries where there's so much bureaucracy and so, so, much barrier, so many barriers to entrepreneurship. Um, so I would say uh, if, if you are interested in entrepreneurship, just just practice setting up a business on the side and it can be anything. You can be offering a product or a service or, uh, you know, even I would say in this space of social entrepreneurship, it's it's um, it's not so much now just about generating money. It's about um, filling a need or solving a need, you know, working towards uh, the sustainable development goals. 
Um, but the risk-free way to do it is to do it on the side of your job. So you don't quit your job, um, you know, to do it. And, and, and if you if you do decide to follow the path of entrepreneurship, you only quit your job when, you know, you really, really know that it, it, you can um, sort of sustain yourself full time as an entrepreneur. And I would say generally, the younger you are, the better uh, tends to be that younger people have fewer responsibilities, uh, uh, you know, not not so ingrained with uh, responsibilities and bills and costs. So if you can do it when you're young, worse that happens is the business fails, which is fine. You know, you either come out with a degree or you've still got your job, but you've gone through this learning process. And I would say generally, um, you know, having seen uh, our experience, um, if you have entrepreneurial uh kind of uh, experience uh, you are so in demand because it really demonstrates that you're proactive and I think that's something that all employers want so even if you don't go on to work for yourself um, you're still super employable and um, so uh, yeah I mean there's also a lot of businesses now that are really opposite offering um, entrepreneurship opportunities so so businesses uh, large companies and engineering firms they, they want to innovate internally and they really want that mindset, that kind of creative, proactive mindset from their employees. So um, I, I know it, uh, you know, we've spoken about it being risky, but there's lots of ways that you can make it very, very low risk and come out of the experience, even if your business fails, come out of the experience just so skilled up. It's amazing. Your point about failing, that's probably one of the, the biggest worries. And I, I think, well, n- nobody likes to fail, um, but I think women in general, uh, are really quite scared of failure. And and that's why a lot of them are very scared to actually take that leap in the first place. But what you've opened my eyes to is that even if it does fail, you haven't lost anything. And by taking that risk, you still gain, um, for one thing, an experience, and you've still definitely learned something. Yeah, and definitely you have to really understand how you frame failure. Like I know um, because engineering, you know, it's a difficult undergraduate degree. So most people who choose engineering are quite ambitious and uh, probably quite academic, I'd say. Well, you have to be really. It's, it's a difficult degree, isn't it? Um, so there is this ingrained fear of failure. Um, but I, I think, yeah, you have to change how uh, how you how you view failure and what that is. I mean, on our side of Blue Tap, our biggest fear is because we're putting uh, chemicals into people's water is, is doing it wrong and poisoning someone. Um, and because it's such a big fear of us, we spent so much time, you know, even our product is so well engineered to make sure that um, o- overdosing on chlorine can't happen. We spent so much time to mitigate that risk. So, um you know, you can come in it from a mindset of um, just mitigating all of the risks. But one of the exciting things about entrepreneurship is it is a little bit risky and it is a bit unknown. Um, and sort of the flip side of the risk is the opportunities Like you when you create something, you have no idea what it's going to become. And it's, it is the most exciting feeling, even just like, you know, making the name when it's something that you didn't exist and then you came up with an idea and then it exists and you hear other people say it and it becomes kind of established and, and well-recognized, it's, it's really incredible. And I think it's kind of a, a, a buzz that you get that I never really experienced when working for other organizations. Um, so uh, I would definitely say there's a personality type that's drawn to, to entrepreneurship as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> When you were at Cambridge and you you had this idea, was there anyone who helped you, supported you, maybe in a 
a mentor kind of role. Uh, we, we've talked about mentors in some of the previous podcast episodes um, and how it's it's important to find someone who can support you, but also if you've got the time to give back to be able to become a mentor yourself. And I was just wondering if there was anyone who at the beginning you thought, oh, they, they've supported me, they're my role model, they've influenced you to and help you do um, the things that you're doing right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess two people actually, they both happen to be male. But um, it's to be honest, the female role models are still uh, quite sh- quite yes. <laughs> quite, uh, <Yeah. laughs> quite short of them in engineering, aren't we? So it's not surprising that they are. I mean, I get definitely the first one is Enrique, who is the is the CEO and founder of um, Isla Urbana, which is the organisation I went to work for in Mexico City. Um, just for his absolute passion, you know, this uh, when I was I must have been twenty four, I think twenty four, so I was still quite young, and I remember going to Mexico and just not even. I never experienced before that that's what work is because the whole team at Isla Urbana were just so passionate and so creative. And uh, I just thought that's, you know, it's exactly what I want to do and I want to be a part of it. So that was definitely someone who inspired me. And then at Cambridge, um, there's uh, Peter Guthrie, who's uh, quite uh, quite a well-known professor in in engineering and sustainable development. And uh, yeah, a very inspirational person, particularly um, with the backdrop of Cambridge, because Cambridge can be quite a difficult place to arrive at. Um, it's it's it is it's because of its kind of history. It's quite quite traditionally buttoned up, you know. Um, and Peter was so open and so enthusiastic. I think he's inspired you know hundreds hundreds of young engineers. But really, um, anyone who supports you to say you don't have to just follow a traditional career, a traditional path. Um, that's that I think that's so invaluable because it's a little bit intimidating. You know, when I graduated from Imperial, I was like, right, I'll get a you know a good job in energy. And I just totally wasn't for me. Um, and that could be for some people, but it wasn't for me. So going through that journey of working out, OK, what is for, for me? What kind of career path is for me? That's quite difficult when you're in your 20s. It's quite um, overwhelming. And so having someone who's established, who offers you support and says, yeah, go on, try it. You know, what's the worst that can happen? That's uh, yeah, that's just so invaluable, really. It's interesting um, looking at the uh, what you might call traditional engineering roles, such as civil engineering mechanical electrical chemical etc but when you look at the roles that we have now um, currently and also then thinking about what we might have in the future there are so many uh, non-traditional engineering roles out there and there's so many different opportunities um, opening up now I mean Looking at university engineering degrees and also engineering apprenticeships, they all still kind of fit within those traditional engineering models. But then you come out of uni or your apprenticeship and then it's like, well, where do I go next? There's so much out there. And like you say, trying to find somewhere to fit into that works for you. It's it's overwhelming. Um, and, and you mentioned that when you worked in oil and gas and realised that it wasn't for you, um, I found that out going through my, uh, my internship. I was fortunate to have gone through a series of um, placement schemes. Um, so I had various different placements and roles. And through that, I found out what I enjoyed. Um, but more importantly, actually, for me... Um, I learned what I didn't enjoy. So when you you look 
towards the future and you're looking at your career journey, those non-traditional engineering roles, you'll be able to find something that suits you. And also there'll be lots of things that probably wouldn't suit you, but if you give it a go, you don't like it, you move on to the next one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your 20s is really a process of elimination, isn't it? Uh, when you're working out what your career is. Yeah, definitely. And I think a little bit deciding as well, because I mean, like 90% of people, particularly engineers, don't know what they want to do specifically. Very few people who are like 11 or 12, mm-hmm. you know, they know they want to be an actor and then they go and do that. But the majority of people don't really know. And also I think there's a real issue in this country with explaining to teenagers when they're deciding what subjects they should do that will dictate the, the rest of their lives actually what real world jobs are and mm. um, you know like I was so unaware of what engineering actually was but um I think so yeah definitely a process of elimination like I oh, know I know I don't want to do that I don't want to do that but also at, at some point like when I was t- I think 25 I'm you at some point you decide you know I decided okay water's for me because uh, it's interesting I like it I think I'm skilled to do it it fits with my lifestyle kind of thing so, and, and that's really interesting because as soon as you do make a decision of, okay, this is the type of engineer I'm going to be or this is the type of professional I'm going to be, um, I actually think you're much more content in yourself and, and you can um, start kind of structuring a, a career that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, process of elimination and arbitrarily deciding at some point is, is the way to go, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Completely agree. <laughs> um. Well, we're running a little bit out of time, so I was just going to wrap up. But I thought, if do you have um, any any thoughts, any final thoughts before we we close? Uh, no, I just reiterate that if anyone is interested in entrepreneurship and is thinking about getting into it, um, the best thing to do and the best thing about entrepreneurs is just to start, just to get something done. And it's it's my favorite thing because I've I've worked in consulting, in academia, in business, in aid and in entrepreneurship and it's just the people you meet who are entrepreneurs and the way that you work as an entrepreneur is so much more productive than any other sector and it's fantastic you can just get so much done so quickly um and it yeah I would just say if you're considering it just you know even if you set up one business and you say this is absolutely going to fail but I'm doing it as a practice that's the best way to learn is le- it's learn by doing and that's what's so cool about it because it's way more interesting than uh you know uh, reading some code or reading some uh, like revising um, it's, it's way more fun <laughs> learning by doing definitely yeah yeah absolutely that's that's the mo for entrepreneurship yeah. well thank you so much for joining us for this discussion it's been really insightful i've definitely i've learned a lot i've learned a lot about um well failure for one thing <laughs> <laughs> So on behalf of Shikan Engineer, I'd like to thank you very much for this incredible discussion. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. It was great to chat to you.